This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, January 16th, 2023, a brand new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you all here. Many of you are off today for MLK Day. We are live and we are so glad that you've tuned in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's our time slot, 3 to 6, 3 hours. If you can listen live, that's our preference. We always recommend that. If not, if you miss any of it, there's a podcast. It is free on demand every day, no charge at all after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or grab the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. That's easy, at Guy Benson Show. Also follow me on those same platforms, personally if you'd like, at Guy P. Benson. I'll be on Fox Business Network later on this evening with David Asman. Looking forward to that conversation. Here on the radio side, our lineup is as follows. Charlie Hurt joining us later on this hour. Josh Krasauer in the next hour. And in our final hour, Griff Jenkins is down at the southern border, and he's got some new data that he has gotten from his sources, Border Patrol, for December. The month of December looks like it was the worst month in history as it pertains to the border crisis. We'll get into those specifics with Griff and his report from Eagle Pass at the start of our final hour here today. As we come on the air, I would like to begin sort of where we left off last week. The dominant story in politics last week was the discovery of multiple batches of classified material in various places relating to Joe Biden, including top secret and SCI material that should never be in an unsecure location. And these various spots were all spots where such material should never be. At first, it was just the closet at the office at that Penn Center in Washington, D.C. And yet some of the people, hacks, rushing to the defense of Biden, almost completely fixated on the what about Trump comparison, which really maybe politically has some bearing, but has no bearing on the legality of it, or the prudence and responsibility of Joe Biden and his team in terms of protecting national security, safeguarding our secrets, adhering to the law. What Trump did, what Hillary did, which I think was worst of the bunch, by the way, as I keep saying, is not some sort of excuse. It might be a reference point. It's not an excuse. And they were saying, well... That was in a locked closet at an office. That's different. It wasn't at his private residence. 
like Mar-a-Lago. Well, then, of course, we got the new information last week. Wait, wait, there's more. They found classified documents in a room in Biden's private residence in Wilmington, Delaware. Oh, they found more classified documents in his garage next to his Corvette. There's a locked garage, Biden told Peter Ducey in a very ill-advised statement, I thought, last week. So this was all coming out over the course of days, which was strange to me because, as we learned, based on their accounting, their version of the story, which, by the way, we're all kind of just relying on here, which I think might be a cause for some skepticism to begin with, But based on their storyline, their timeline, the first of these troves, the biggest, we think, of these troves, at least so far, was found in that closet at the Penn-Biden Center in D.C. on November 2nd. Turned over November 3rd. This is days before, the week before, the national midterm elections. We never learned about any of this before the election. In fact, it took months for that to come out. And then once it came out, then there was like the rollout of additional discoveries, which then spanned a period of days. On Friday, questions were being asked, are we done yet? Like, has this search been completed? And Corinne Jean-Pierre, the hapless press secretary for President Biden, said, yes, the search has been completed. So I'll give you one guess if you tuned out for the weekend, what emerged over the weekend. The search was not completed, ladies and gentlemen. Quoting now, FoxNews.com, another batch of classified documents was found at President Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware, the president's attorneys announced on Saturday. (laughs) So the press secretary tells us Friday, yes, it's finally over, we promise. The three troves, we've got the batches, we've got this. And then Saturday, oh, surprise, there's more. Special counsel to the president, Richard Sauber, disclosed in a statement that five additional pages of documents with classified markings were were found at Biden's home Thursday evening, making a total of six classified documents retrieved from the home. That's in addition to the, what, 10 at the office? And if they found the additional pages on Thursday night, what an awful look and another embarrassment for the White House to announce to everyone that the search had been completed already. And then they had to say, oh, well, you know, the next day, whoops, we found more. Now, here's what's, I think, kind of extraordinary about this. I've already given you multiple times my legal opinion, not that I'm a lawyer, but talking to several attorneys, including several on the air here. When it comes to the Justice Department, now you've got special counsels, parallel special counsels, one looking at Trump, one looking at Biden. We don't know where that's going to go. They're supposed to be totally independent. But from the perspective of Merrick Garland, the head of the DOJ under Biden, if you had any inkling, any desire to try to nail Trump on the document stuff at Mar-a-Lago, I think that was dead in the water vis-a-vis Hillary's worst behavior. I think it is now totally dead 
with the Biden mess bookending it. Hillary on one end, Biden on the other. And the Biden problem getting worse seemingly by the day. And I saw a number of Democrats over the weekend pondering whether or not national security had definitely been compromised because of these documents floating around where they shouldn't have been. We found out today from our colleague Peter Ducey that there are no visitor logs to the Wilmington residents, so we don't know who was in and out of that place. And the president's team put out this statement like indignant, like every other president ever, private residence is private. Of course there's not a visitor log. Well, I think, and several, several people pointed out this counterpoint, which is if you're bringing secret classified documents into your private residence, then who shows up at that residence becomes a valid question, a relevant point in a way that perhaps otherwise it would not. Now, you might say, does a lot of this also apply to Mar-a-Lago and that whole mess? Yes, but I also didn't defend that. I also didn't get up on a high horse saying that I'm so much better than that. That's what Joe Biden did. That's what the Democrats did. So you had the initial disclosure from the office, then the double disclosure from Biden's private house, including the garage, then the assertion that the search was over, this comprehensive, exhaustive search from the president's lawyers, and then the follow-up announcement that, just kidding, there was another group of documents that had been found. That's the final, for now, update from over the weekend, which raises two more points. Point number one, the incompetence, the ineptitude, the amateur hour humiliation of this is really a sight to behold. Part of me kind of enjoys it because so many people on the left fancy themselves to be these adults in the room. They're just so much more responsible. They're just so much better than the Republicans at virtually all things. Much smarter, much savvier. And then this is how Biden's team has handled this. They have known they had a problem since before the elections, since weeks before Thanksgiving. When we were all sitting around Thanksgiving tables, eating our turkey and hanging out with family and watching football, they were already aware at that point that they had this problem for weeks. Now we're in mid-January when it finally emerges. And rather than having really aggressively pursued all of this to get the mess contained, put a little fancy bow on top of it, present everything to the American people, ripping off the Band-Aid at an opportune time, They knew they would take some lumps probably for a couple news cycles. They'd get dinged. Conservatives would freak out. The media would cover it a little bit. Then they could move on. That's sort of the plan that I assume they would have gone with. Instead, they didn't get their ducks in a row. They didn't conduct this stuff properly. Seemed like they spent a lot of time making sure that we didn't know about it for as long as possible, certainly before we all voted. I have no doubt that was part of the rationale here. They did not want this coming out right before the election. No November surprise. Thank you very much. 
But instead of being competent and getting this thing together and then getting it over with in one fell swoop in a somewhat transparent process, instead they created a drip, drip, drip. Usually the drip, drip, drip is like the media digging into things and more stuff emerges and whistleblowers emerge or the opposition party. Like the Republicans, let's say, had access to all of this. So they started seeding it out piece by piece to keep the story going. That's usually how drip, drip, drips go in Washington, D.C. Instead, this was a drip, drip, drip caused by Biden's team directly through their choices. They put out the first big drip knowing, I guess, that there was a risk of more. They hadn't gotten their act together. They hadn't contained this thing, and therefore the additional drips that have made this thing now a dominant story for a week have all been sourced back to them. The political malpractice in the way they've handled this is pretty extraordinary. What did Barack Obama once say about Joe Biden? Never underestimate Joe's ability to bleep things up. Well, I think American voters would agree with that assessment in a lot of different ways given the last couple of years, and just the last week itself, what a mess. We're not sending our best, as someone once said. Then there's another question here. I think a pretty significant and important question, which is why is it, how is it, that we keep relying on Joe Biden's lawyers to tell us what's happening, doing these searches? Do they have clearances to have their hands on this stuff? Do they all have access to top-secret material? I know they say, oh, they find the marking, then they don't look at it. Why are we relying on Joe Biden's lawyers to do all of this? The searching, the statements, the revelations— Why are we trusting them? I know they keep saying, oh, we're just so forthcoming. We're just so responsible and transparent. Aren't we great? Unlike Trump and the lack of cooperation and the lies, we are bungling this and botching this badly. But trust us. Why did he have lawyers cleaning out the office in the first place? Who sends a lawyer to clean up an office? A group of lawyers. That's weird. Someone made that point last week. Then you've got Trump's lawyers, or rather Biden's lawyers in this case, who are paid to protect Biden's interests. Their job is to protect their client, not to protect the national interests, not to adhere strictly to the truth at all times. Their job is to serve Joe Biden. That is not one in the same as serving the American people and actual transparency. Why are those people the ones who are doing all of this stuff? with these public disclosures and public statements and surprise, we found this one, then we rushed over and found that one, then we thought we were done, but we found another one. These are his representatives looking out for him, not for the truth, not necessarily for the country. And now there's a special counsel attached to this thing as well. Where's the FBI to actually conduct searches? They did one at Mar-a-Lago. After they hit the end of that rope, I feel like maybe it's time for someone other than Biden's paid lawyers, people representing him, trying to protect him and his presidency. Someone else should be doing this now. But here we are. So we just wait for the next announcement from Biden's lawyers, and we all say, oh, that must be the truth. It just doesn't make sense. 
some absolute head scratchers on this one. And it's gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. And the special counsel is at least a placeholder in terms of a talking point now, but the White House has really mucked this up with their own public statements. Even going back to Corinne Jean-Pierre Friday, the search has been completed. Then drip comes Saturday. Total mess. Amateur hour at the White House. Does anyone take classified material seriously anymore in this country? Especially at elite levels. A lot more to get to. We'll have a reaction from Charlie Hurt coming up. We are just getting started on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Please stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Is it possible that national security was jeopardized here as, as, as many, including you, uh, raised that possibility with the Mar-a-Lago documents? Uh, I don't think we can exclude the possibility without know, knowing more of the facts. Um, we have asked for an assessment uh, in the intelligence community of the Mar-a-Lago documents. Uh, I think we ought to get that same assessment of the documents uh, found in the, uh, in the uh, think tank as well as the home of President Biden. Uh, I'd like to know what these documents were. I'd like to know what the IC's assessment is, whether there was any risk of exposure and what the harm would be and whether any mitigation needs to be done. Uh, I think that would be appropriate uh, and consistent with what we requested in the case of Mar-a-Lago. That was Adam Schiff on ABC yesterday, not ruling out that perhaps national security had been compromised because of all of this. He said, now, I would like to know, you know, how serious was this? Was it actually compromised? What's interesting is, Hillary Clinton, with her bootleg server, almost certainly compromised a ton of secrets. Former Defense Secretary Bob Gates said it's nearly inevitable that our enemies hacked into that because it wasn't secured. And all these people lined up and endorsed her and voted for her for president. So do they really care? By the way, Andrew Weissman, longtime DOJ guy, now appears on MSNBC all the time, a big popular figure on the resistance left he tweeted over the weekend the white house keeps digging a hole deeper they have failed to answer so many questions which is very strange if this is all an innocent mistake total number of government docs found and precisely where and what levels of classification question mark why wasn't this all revealed in november slash december question mark well i think we know why it wasn't revealed in november certainly early november oh and the angry replies from his resistance fan base Kind of delicious, but those are fair questions. They're good ones. Charlie Hurd is next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here together, it's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Charlie Hurt is opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor, and he joins us now. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. I have a lot to get to with you. I want to start here. Just your overall thoughts on the Biden documents and sort of the spin that keeps getting updated because they keep having to change their story basically every day. Yeah, they really do. Um, and I think that we're sort of at a spot now where it's undeniable that, that this actually really could end up going somewhere uh, because, like you say, they keep having to update everything that they say about it. And it's clear that, you know, th- there are significant differences between the situation that w- with uh, Donald Trump and then the sh- situation with Joe Biden. And, and I would argue that, that uh, the situation with Joe Biden is much, much, much worse. Um, and and the, the main reasons for that are because, you know, when, when Joe Biden left the, the, the Obama White House six years ago, he had no authority whatsoever to take those documents, not even a, a, a speech, you know, even if you don't agree with the legal reasoning of, of the, that Trump's lawyers have made about those documents, you can't even make those arguments, begin to make any arguments about Biden. And then, and then all of the other questions that have come up uh, that you've covered uh, ably about, you know, what, you know, where have these documents been? Who's seen them? Um, what's, uh, you know, what, what was the purpose of taking them in the first place? Um, and, and so I, I think it's, I, I really do, I see this as a moment where um, things are turning inside the Democrat Party for Joe Biden. Yeah, and there was a pretty testy exchange yesterday on Meet the Press. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin, he was on with Chuck Todd. And Todd had asked him, basically on the Hunter Biden stuff, sort of incredulous and angry. Well, what crime are you, you know, what crime did he commit? You know, what are you actually alleging was actually a crime here? And it went back and forth. It got a little personal. And here's how part of it sounded in Cut 28. I'm concerned about getting the truth. I don't target individuals, target individuals. <laughs> I target you don't? You're targeting Hunter Biden. My, my, my concern is this show, my, Senator. You're targeting an Chuck, individual. Chuck, my, my concern, my, you know, Chuck. You know, part, part of the problem, and, and this is pretty obvious to anybody watching this, is you don't invite me on to interview me. You invite me on to argue with me. You know, I'm just trying to lay out the facts that certainly Senator Grass and I uncovered. They were suppressed. They were censored. They interfered in the 2020 election. Conservatives understand that. Unfortunately, liberals in the media don't. And that's part of the things yeah. that uh, part, of, part of the reasons our politics are inflamed is we do not have an unbiased uh, media. We don't. It's unfortunate. I'm all for a free press. Well, it needs Senator, to be more unbiased. Senator, There's look, misinformation is, look, on both partisan, sides, but the Senator, censorship and Senator, suppression look, we're trying to primarily do issues here, in from fact, the left. Partisan cable, look, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon and talk about media bias all you want. I understand it's part of your identity. The cable cocoon, it's part of your identity. I mean, that that's a pretty snide thing there from Chuck Todd, Charlie. And part of the challenge that he put to Johnson was, you know, if you're going to keep talking about Hunter Biden, what crimes are you talking about? Well, first of all, there's a federal investigation that's been going on for years into this guy. All sorts of shady stuff going on. 
And we also know that there were multiple reports, including from NBC News this past fall, about prosecutors believing they had the elements of several different crimes already looking into Hunter Biden. It, I don't think, was a very good look there for the moderator, quote-unquote, of Meet the Press. Yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing the lengths people like Chuck Todd will go to to stick up for not just Hunter Biden, but the entire Biden administration and um, yeah, and, and, and Democrats in general. And, and I love how they talk about this supposed cocoon, cable cocoon. Well, you know, you want to talk about a cocoon. The entire media establishment is a cocoon for the Democrat yep. Party. Yep. And it's, it's, it's protected by people like Chuck Todd. And it really is, uh, it really is disgusting. But I, 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 I'll be honest with you, and I, and I don't have, I, you know, I don't know anything, um, but, but, you know, having seen, uh, you know, studied politics for a long time, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, we now, you know, as was evidence right there, we see how invested Chuck Todd is in protecting the Biden administration and in protecting specifically Hunter Biden, which, and I, I you know, maybe they're great friends, I, I don't know, and, and maybe he feels sorry for him and wants to stick up for him. But, but obviously, this has nothing to do with Hunter Biden and his uh, horrible addictions and all of the creepy stuff that we unfortunately know about because he's he's such a uh, his his personal life is such a mess. Uh, this is about uh, our, our, our the leader of the free world. This is about our, our government being exposed to somebody who is willing to sell access and his and his political uh, name around the world. That's that that's the issue here. And 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 I I can't help but wonder. If in the course of that investigation, oh, and this is crucial too, the degree to which the DOJ is also similarly invested in our politics, which has only been exposed in the past, you know, in sharp detail in the last six years or so, given how invested the media is and the and the DOJ is in our politics, it makes me wonder if maybe the feds investigating Hunter Biden haven't come across stuff that is so serious that they're looking around saying there is no way this guy gets through another election. Uh, we, even we can't cover for him this time the way we covered for him in 2020. And, and, they're, ha- and they're trying to rip the Band-Aid off now and, uh, it, when there is plenty of time so, you know, so they don't wind up with a, a John Fetterman situation where, where you, you, uh, you, you, it's, it's too late to switch horses when all of this stuff inevitably comes out. I, I suspect it's probably going to get much, much worse. Well, of course, John Fetterman won anyway, right? They nominated that guy and he won, uh, which is, I think, one of the uh, unfortunate examples of some lessons that need to be learned for the Republicans in 2024. But, you know, you mentioned some of the sordid personal stuff involving Hunter Biden. We have stayed away from that here. It's not of interest to me. It's not the actual crux of any real scandal, like the the private failings or uh, difficulties or addictions of the president's son. It's the business dealings. It's you know the the money that's flying around. Tony Bobulinski, the emails. That is what's relevant. The apparent flagrant lie that Joe Biden told that he had no connection, no knowledge whatsoever of any of the foreign business dealings of his son. There's a great deal of evidence that that was not true uh, when Biden said it hadn't been true for a very long time. That being said, Charlie, 
there has been a little bit of attention, like a little flare up around Hunter Biden. He, I guess, uh, fathered a child. So this is Joe Biden's grandson or grand granddaughter. Uh, this is the the grandchild of the president of the United States. And because Hunter was not married to the mother, and I, I guess she might have been a sex worker or a stripper or something, they are just trying to pretend like this granddaughter, that this child doesn't exist. And Jonathan Turley, who's a law professor, wrote about this and tweeted about it just yesterday, saying it's awful to think of this child one day learning that her father fought recognition of paternity, fought child support, then fought using his name, her ability to use his name. Fortunately, she has the law on her side, and despite her father's disgraceful efforts, she is a Biden. And look, I guess this is tangentially relevant to Joe Biden because he keeps talking about how proud he is of Hunter Biden, but obviously not proud of his own grandchild. And there are other reports that the White House and the Biden family have gone to great lengths to just whitewash this person, to airbrush this person out of the family like she doesn't exist, even though she is the child of the president's son. There's just no disputing that, even though he tried to dispute it. He didn't want to pay child support. Now he's he went to court, I guess, to try to block this child from using his last name because it's the last name Biden. It's not of the level of the international business dealing stuff, but it definitely puts a little bit of a dent into the whole family image that Joe Biden likes to talk about so frequently and the, the whole empathy brand that he's tried to build. Yeah, I, I agree with you about a lot of the, the whores and the, and the, and the crack and the, all the, you know, smoking stuff out of the carpet and all that kind of stuff with Hunter Biden. I, I, none of that is of importance to me, but I have to say this issue, this issue of vanishing of ghosting, your own daughter, uh, but all because of uh, he may think they were mistakes that he made. But once you have a child, it's no longer a mistake. It's your life. It's your obligation. It's your it's your responsibility. And I say that, uh, I, and I think it extends to the president, who has a great. Uh, could you imagine having a granddaughter, your own flesh and blood, and? And ignoring her, vanishing her, as you say, airbrushing her out of the family because somehow it's embarrassing to you or it's politically inconvenient to you. I think that this, while the, you know, the other stuff is sorted and disgusting and all that kind of stuff, and, 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 but I agree with you, it's not centrally important to who is. This goes to the heart of who these people are. People who, who are deadbeat granddads and deadbeat dads, especially when they claim to represent, you know, the, the Democrat Party claims to represent people who have been disproportionately affected, their lives destroyed, families destroyed by fathers who don't take responsibility for their children. I find it the most disgusting thing I have ever witnessed in a, uh, in, in a politician at this level. And I think he should be held, and, and, and it's, it's amazing to me. I've been writing about it every time it comes up. Every time the New York Post uncovers a new thing, I always write about it. 
Um, my paper sort of shies away from it, but I, I sometimes go where others uh, aren't comfortable going um, because I think it is so important. But it, And it blows my mind that we're not having this giant, huge conversation in this country about the fact that you have a president who is a deadbeat granddad who, who, whose priorities are so sick and twisted that he would dismiss a four-year-old granddaughter and pretend she doesn't exist and, 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 and his son would go to court so that he doesn't have to pay to support her because it's politically inconvenient. That's a level of sickness we have never seen before. Meanwhile, yesterday, President Biden was down at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and he made a couple of claims, the president did, about his past and his history that had been previously raised and debunked. For example, cut 16. And let's lay one thing to rest. I may be a practicing Catholic. I used to go to 730 Mass every morning in high school and then in college before I went to the black church. Not a joke. Andy knows this. Not a joke, he says, but the black church that he's referenced in the past, I guess some people went digging and congregants and parishioners there said they have no memory of Joe Biden having done that. Then on the civil rights front, he repeated this again, cut 17. I have two political heroes my entire life when I started off as a 22-year-old kid in the east side of the civil rights movement. He has said in the past that he actually wasn't an active part of the civil rights movement. Now he's talking about a specific element of it that he was, just contradicting his own previous statements and stories I mean, Charlie, I did have to chuckle a few days ago when I saw the story that Congressman George Santos had uh, once claimed that he was the star of his college volleyball team and led them to a championship when, in fact, he didn't even go to the college. I mean, the, that, that mountain of lies keeps getting taller, and he's getting chased down every corridor by every camera in Washington, and I think he's brought that on himself. I don't have much sympathy given just the blizzard of lies that he's put out there. But I feel like George Soros, in these moments of trial and tribulation and difficulty, might look to the president of the United States for inspiration and just say, if you just stick with the lies long enough, shoot for the stars, man. You can really go anywhere and achieve anything. Oh, oh uh, there's no doubt in my mind. If George Santos was a, uh, a Democrat, he would be like on the glide path to becoming president, because apparently none of these things matter uh, if you're on that side of the ledger. But but, you know, it is amazing to listen to Joe Biden lie about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I can't think of a more uh, uh, unusual way to honor Martin Luther King than to lie about uh, the, the civil rights movement, to lie about uh, church, to lie about, um, you know, you, your uh, your supposed involvement in uh, Martin Luther King's life's work. But, the the you know. Who does such a thing? Somebody named Biden. This is the kind of people they are. And that's why, I, you know, I, I, I go back to the thing about being a deadbeat granddad and a deadbeat dad. These people are the kinds of people who look at something like Martin Luther King and look at something like the civil rights movement and see an opportunity to inflate themselves. And that's really disgusting because all of the – everything Martin Luther King did, that every accomplishment we've had in this country – in, in, when it comes to civil rights, has been made by people who made selfless sacrifice, who put others in front of themselves and strived for something far greater than them, than themselves. And uh, the Bidens, uh, everything they do is strive.
striving to uh, enrich themselves and put themselves at the center of things. Well, it also seemed appropriate that Biden would come back to Atlanta, which was the scene of his speech he gave last year, basically calling all of his political opponents, you know, segregationists, if they were in favor of the very modest and common sense and widely supported Georgia election reforms. And he went as demagogic as possible in that same city. Then he returned to that city and told some of these apparent tall tales about his own history, which is what he does all the time. I don't think he gives a speech without doing that. Uh, which I think is sort of interesting. And uh, we noticed it. We enjoyed asking Charlie Hurd about it, opinion editor at The Washington Times, also a Fox News contributor. Charlie, we do appreciate your time today and always, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, bud. The Guy Benson Show comes right back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. So yesterday I was on Fox News Sunday on the panel. Shannon Bream presiding. She's really doing a very nice job with that show. Ratings are up. Ratings among young people are up. So just thrilled to see that. Good things happening to good people. She's one of the best. And toward the very end of our panel segment, she asked each of us to quickly reflect on the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., And she started with Juan Williams, who was seated to my right, and he gave a fairly lengthy, thoughtful answer. Then it went around the table, and by the time she got to me, there was almost no time left. Like, I knew that I had 15 to 20 seconds, maybe maximum, to give an answer, which is kind of hard to do when you're thinking about someone like MLK. So I condensed it down to 11 seconds. Here's what I said in cut 18. The founders gave us a miraculous gift in this country with the understanding that we had to always strive for a more perfect union. And it's hard to think of one man who did more in his lifetime in pursuit of that goal than Dr. King. Tried to be succinct about it, but I think it's hard to argue with that. And as a nation, we pay tribute to Dr. King today. Many of us have the day off because of his legacy and his accomplishments and the pursuit of of that more perfect union and racial equality. And he sacrificed a lot, ultimately everything, for that goal. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. A lot to get to on the program. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every day on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, the one-stop shop. You can also, for the podcast, go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. No market update today because the markets are closed. MLK Day. Hope Many of you are having a nice day off here as we bring you a brand new program here. I wanted to read to you from a Washington Post editorial. This is from the editorial board at that newspaper. Very liberal. I don't think they've endorsed a Republican for president, for example, since maybe ever. I mean, it's or decades and decades. This is a progressive, lefty newspaper editorial board. But even they 
are queasy and concerned about the direction of the Washington, D.C. City Council. Right, D.C., our nation's capital, that leftists yearn to make a state for totally partisan reasons. They want two more Democratic automatic senators on the blue side of the aisle. That's what they want. Total power grab. It should never, ever happen. But the D.C. City Council has been making so many horrible decisions that I can almost imagine that the leftists out in California might hold an emergency meeting to brainstorm how to keep up with the D.C. Council when it comes to destruction. So we've talked about how they've extended so-called voting rights in D.C. to illegal immigrants, to all foreigners living in the district, including foreign staff at like the Russian and Chinese embassies. That was one of their big galaxy brain ideas that they implemented. We told you recently about their big push to boost tourism in D.C. by raising hotel taxes. See how that goes for them. And then, of course, there's this plan to substantially reduce criminal penalties for a whole array of violent crimes, including crimes involving illegal guns. These are the anti-gun people, except they want to reduce penalties for using illegal guns in commission of crimes, including carjacking, which has tripled in D.C. in recent years. It's nuts. And yet it passed the city council, last we reported, unanimously. But the mayor, Muriel Bowser, who's a leftist, bad in many ways, but less nuts than, I guess, the city council, she vetoed this measure. And now, tomorrow, the council is poised to vote to overturn the veto and make this law. And the Washington Post editors are alarmed. Here's what they write. Washington could become a more dangerous city if the D.C. Council votes Tuesday as currently planned to override Mayor Muriel Bowser's veto of a bill that decreases punishments for violent crimes such as carjackings, home invasion burglaries, robberies, and even homicides. The bill eliminates life sentences and gets rid of mandatory minimums for every crime except first-degree murder. So life sentence no longer on the table even for first-degree murder, and you can have a mandatory minimum for that crime only. Everything else, there's no mandatory maximum, no matter how serious the crime. In fact, the editors write, the maximum penalty, maximum penalty, for someone convicted of a violent felony while using a gun to commit more violence would drop to four years from 15 years. D.C. is already awash in crime, violent crime, gun crimes, illegal guns, despite all the laws against these guns in D.C. And now the city council is going to take the maximum when it comes to sentences for someone convicted of a violent felony while using a gun to commit more violence. That used to be a 15-year maximum. Now it will be a four-year maximum. They're reducing it by more than two-thirds, reducing the maximum penalties for that. The editors write, proponents of the bill say African Americans are disproportionately convicted of violent crimes and couch their arguments in terms of equity. But African Americans are also disproportionately victims of these same crimes. Well, yes. But this isn't really about fairness or racial justice. This is about 
left-wing experimental policy that they are couching in the verbiage and the language of wokeness. They say, oh, well, it's just so equitable to make these changes, these pro-crime, pro-criminal changes, because disproportionately the criminals in this city are black. And when people point out, like the Washington Post editors, that the victims of these crimes are black, it's like it makes no difference. That's beside the point. That's not really an element of equity that they're interested in. Now, the editorial goes on and says you could tweak this legislation to make it less bad. And the mayor told the editorial board recently, according to her, that some of these council members are privately expressing second thoughts about all of this, like weakening penalties for violent crime. It's crazy. One council member put forward a sensible amendment, they write, that would have addressed some of the mayor's concerns, but it was voted down 10 to 3, a blowout, before the bill passed unanimously. That was in November. So the person who put forward the amendment, Brooke Pinto, was one of the three people who voted unsuccessfully for some of these changes that would make it less psychotic, but then voted anyway for the overall bill despite the inclusion of the psychotic stuff. So it passed unanimously, and she said she didn't want to, quote, unravel years of careful and thoughtful work. How careful and thoughtful does this sound to you? The editors at Washington Post say, that doesn't seem like a great way to govern. Talk about understatement. Are they afraid to offend the members of the council who are about to make Washington, D.C. even more dangerous and even more of a haven for criminal activity? That doesn't seem like a great way to govern. Yeah, that's one way of putting it, guys. And if you look at the D.C. crime stats, just over the first two weeks or so of this new year, it continues to show spikes. This is from the Washington Examiner. Spikes across the board year to date compared to last year. This includes an eye-popping 189 reports of motor vehicle theft, 189 in less than two weeks, an 89% increase. There have been seven homicides in D.C. already. This was just a few days ago. It's probably gone up by then, sadly. Up from five this time last year. It's already really bad before the city council makes it worse intentionally over the mayor's veto. And that vote's coming tomorrow. And the Washington Post editors are like, oh, maybe pretty please, let's reconsider it. Is this the best way to govern? We'll see how this goes. But a frightening vote is coming tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Wokeness masquerading as equity or fairness, which in fact is going to result in more people dying, more criminals being out on the streets much sooner to commit more crimes. Won't that be fair to the people who bear the brunt of that crime in Washington, D.C.? This is a sickness. This is a very, very demented ideology. And we'll see how the council votes tomorrow, I guess. Right back on the Guy Benson Show after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. With us now, our next guest, Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, good to have you back here. Guy, great to be back on the show. We've been talking a fair amount today and, of course, last week about this Biden classified documents flap. Seems to just keep getting worse for him. Just your political read on it quickly. 
Well, number one, there's something of a mutually assured destruction right now in the run-up to the 2024 election, if it does turn out to be Biden running for re-election. And, uh, you know, Trump is certainly in the mix, although he's far from certain to be the nominee. But the, 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 the chorus of Democratic condemnation towards Trump, towards the Republican Party, vis-a-vis the Mar-a-Lago raid, uh, is going to be a lot less aggressive going forward because uh, now Biden clearly has his own vulnerability. There was a lot of spin in the immediate revelation that Biden had these these secret documents at, at the University of Pennsylvania, that at least it wasn't in his home. And then we find out that it's in his garage. We have more documents at, uh, in the garage where the Corvette is. Uh, additional documents were revealed over the weekend that were classified. Yep. So I don't think you're going to be hearing, Guy, a whole lot of Democratic uh, attack lines about irresponsibility of national security classified documents as a line going forward. And uh, look, like I think it neutralizes the issue, just generally speaking. I don't think it's going to make make a huge impact uh, in the future because ultimately there are a lot more important issues that voters care about. But as far as an attack on Republicans, we've heard a lot about. Uh, you know, a lot of Democrats have brought up the the, the Mar-a-Lago case. I don't think we're going to be hearing nearly a, as much about it uh, going forward from from the Democratic Party. Since you invoke the 2024 presidential election, let's talk about your piece at Axios regarding the GOP in 2024 and sort of this weird frozen moment where you have former President Donald Trump already as an announced candidate for president. He did that almost immediately after the midterms. People have questioned the timing of that. Sometimes I forget that he's an active candidate, but he is. That's the choice that he made. Then there is a lot of discussion, of course, around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is widely considered to be a very strong potential candidate. But the word is that If he decides to run, my guess is he is inclined to run, but I don't know. If he decides to run, we probably won't know officially until after the legislative session in Florida, which would be in May, which is a ways off from right now. And therefore, you have a lot of other people just sort of sitting, waiting, watching, not really sure when to jump in. It seems like some folks maybe don't want to be the second person to get in. They don't want to be in too soon. They don't want to be the only person in against Trump. Just kind of an interesting moment here, Josh. It's a weird moment, um, and, and it's a sign that it's going to take some time for this Republican field to fully develop. Uh, keep in mind, at this time in 20, what, four years ago, in 2020 on the Democratic side, uh, 2019, I should say, uh, there were nine Democratic candidates already announced for president. So we have we have won Donald Trump uh, at this point. And, and like you said, Guy, there's a little bit of uncertainty on whether – He's going to really mount the full-fledged campaign, how, how aggressive he's going to be. You don't want to be the one person running against Trump uh, in, 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 at a time when no one else is in the race. So, you know, there, there are a lot of in, unique factors that are driving candidates uh, to wait, to take their time in deciding whether to run for president. Uh, we report in Axios, Mike Pence, uh, he, he, he was seen as someone who might be uh, early out of the gate, but he's going to be taking his time, and he may not even be running at all. Uh, he's, he's, it looks like he's going to be at least assessing his options as the field develops and may not be one of the earlier candidates to make a decision. Uh, Youngkin, uh, you know, he, he's the challenge for someone like Youngkin, who gets a whole lot of attention in the national press, is that he may not have like a major governing uh, accomplishment. Uh, he's dealing with a Democratic state Senate. Uh, you know, he, he's really won an impressive campaign in 2021 and focused on education, has done a lot of things in that front. But it, it's going to be tough to get a whole lot of headline accomplishments with a Democratic state Senate. And if, it, if he does compromise and, 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 and work in a bipartisan manner, would that be sellable to a Republican primary electorate 
in, in 2024. And then you've got you know, DeSantis, you mentioned he's going to have to wait till, till the end of the Florida legislative session. The one nugget we also got on the, on the, on the campaign, Nikki Haley may be one of the first uh, candidates to announce among the, the big names uh, exploring campaigns. She's already staffing up. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she, of, of all the bold-faced names, she might be one of the first. Well, keep in uh, mind, she also had in. said pretty unequivocally that if Trump ran, she wouldn't run in 2024. So that's interesting. Yeah, well, look, that's <laughs> she's been something of a political weather vane in so far as the Republican Party goes, Guy. You know, she, she criticized Trump pretty aggressively in the wake of, of, of January 6th. Then she said she wouldn't run if Trump was going to run. She's clearly – I mean, everyone I've talked to in – who has ties to, to, to the former governor of South Carolina seems to suggest that she's definitely in. It's just a matter of exactly when she, she jumps in the race. Have you seen this story today about an email, a political fundraising email that's gone out to some Republican donors, Republican activists, and it has the Ron DeSantis logo at the top of it. It looks very much like it comes from DeSantis with the photograph and the hyperlinks and everything else. And, The subject line is, should I run for president? And this purports to come from DeSantis, but if you actually go down to the bottom and read the fine print, it's a fundraising email from a Trump PAC, allegedly at least. That strikes me as kind of an interesting choice. What do you make of that? Yeah, the the shadow boxing between the Trump campaign and the DeSantis potential campaign is already beginning. DeSantis is fascinating. I, you know, I, has quite quite a brand in Florida. I, I think when you look at polls, he is the, the along with Trump, the elephant in the room. Uh, if you're a moderate Republican, you like him. If you're a very conservative Republican, you like him. If you're a MAGA Republican, you like DeSantis. Uh, but but at some point, I think he's going to have to kind of pick his message. Does, does he try to maneuver himself to Trump's right? Um, and, and and he's doing that in some in in, in one way in terms of vaccines and how, how he's kind of going after some vaccine manufacturers in Florida, uh, or does he try to kind of be the guy who's the alternative to Trump more from the center-right lane? And then that's going to be a big decision if he does run that he's going to have to make. I, I do find it fascinating, though, that the Trump folks are also worried about DeSantis, and, and it seems to be a way to kind of get into people's heads about his intentions and trying to put words in DeSantis's mouth. And by the way, Josh, I just should point out that I saw this a moment ago. The Trump universe is saying that this story is fake. The email is fake. So just want to put that out there. I guess we'll see. I just think if you're in DeSantis world and you're planning a run, having the built-in reason to wait until May is maybe manna from heaven to let some things settle, to let some things develop. There's no big rush. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Quickly here, Josh, on the other side of the aisle – There are some people clearly desperate to be president of the United States. The vice president, the transportation secretary, the governor of California, they all come to mind. But it seems more plausible now than ever that Joe Biden actually is going to do this thing and try to run again. I've been very skeptical of that. I'm still not fully convinced. But do you think the odds are now perhaps more pronounced in the favor of Biden going for a second term? I, I do, and every Democratic uh, strategist and official I've talked to in recent weeks is convinced that there's no way he doesn't doesn't uh, launch a re-election campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had some of the same skepticism as you did, and I still think that it's very possible, given given if, if, if circumstances change, if the economy goes into recession, uh, if this if this uh, ethical uh, 
controversy about it, the documents get, gets worse. Like I, I could see decision making change, but you know, I think talking to enough Democrats, you realize that the fear of, of a wide open fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, if Biden decided not to run, would be potentially very damaging. And the Democrats overperformed, did, did quite well in the midterm elections by basically being the not MAGA party, the, the, the default. Um, and I think that, 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 that is sort of the, that's what's giving, giving a lot of Democrats, certainly giving the White House, a spring in their step. They think that they can kind of run the same prevent defense. They don't need to run the most inspiring campaign. They can be sort of the default incumbent and say that they're not the, the MAGA Republicans. They're well, not, and some of that might depend on who they're running against, of course. And if there is a wide-open battle for the soul of the party, then it could be sort of the squad-type party or looking closer to that, which may not end nearly as well for the Dems. A lot to chew on in the very nascent stages of the next presidential campaign. We'll be talking about it a lot through the weeks and months with Josh Krasauer from Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Let's step aside. Come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's The Guy Benson Show. So someone sent me a story from the American Mind at AmericanMind.org, sort of a righty populist publication. This was last week. It's a story by William Vogley, who is not sort of a wishy-washy, never-Trump establishment-type person. But he's written a piece entitled Make Republicans Electable Again. So I sat down and I read it, and I thought it was an extremely compelling fact-based argument against nominating Donald Trump again as the Republican standard bearer in 2024 for president. And whether you agree or disagree with that on the surface, whether you are someone who is inclined to be all in for Trump again, Or maybe you love Trump, voted for him twice, but you're sniffing around for other options. Or, as a two-time Trump voter, you are very much looking for someone else this time. Or you were never a Trump fan. I would like you to listen to some of this argument. Because I think we have to respond to rational arguments. Whether we want to agree with them or not, rationality, history... Factual information needs to matter. And I think that's especially true when it comes to challenging your own priors, your own assumptions, your own overall leanings. So Vogley begins this long piece, and I don't have time to read the whole thing to you, so I'll try to give you some representative snippets, with an example of George Wallace and his presidential campaign in 1972, where his slogan, George Wallace, the segregationist, which has no bearing, there's no comparison to Trump here, it's just an example, Wallace's campaign slogan that year was send them a message. Them being sort of the establishment and the right-thinking people who sneer at everyone else, and that was kind of the populist, let's get some revenge, let's be the silent 
majority type energy. Send them a message. And the message was vote for George Wallace. Four years later, Wallace ran again for the Democratic nomination, 1976. Bogley writes, this posed a danger for the entire party, but especially for another Southern governor who was also in the race, Jimmy Carter of Georgia. Carter struck back by running directly at Wallace with the slogan, don't send them a message, send them a president. And of course, history shows that Jimmy Carter won the nomination and won that election, then was a total disaster in terms of governance, and then lost four years later handily to Ronald Reagan, thank goodness. Politics ain't beanbag, journalist Finley Dunn declared in 1895. Neither is it a form of therapy or a vehicle for affirming group solidarity. I'm quoting now. Republicans pondering what to do in 2024 must engage the question Democrats faced 48 years earlier. Do we want to make a statement or to win an election? Is the point to air grievances and manifest defiance against the woke Democratic Party and its academic, journalistic, and corporate auxiliaries? Or is the objective to achieve the virtuous cycle of partisan politics, win elections, thereby acquiring power, which is used to enact sound policies whose beneficial effects increase the likelihood of winning future elections? These loaded questions have a loaded answer. This is his bottom line very early in his piece, the thesis. Quoting, there is no sound or even sane risk-reward assessment that culminates in choosing Donald Trump to be the 2024 GOP presidential nominee. Seven years ago, some who were dubious about Trump's competence and character, myself included, he writes, declared that they were anti-anti-Trump. That Trump had a growing following, despite his obvious flaws, made clear that both parties had failed to address problems with which citizens were deeply and legitimately concerned. Perhaps a figure from the world of business, including show business, could achieve successes that had eluded career politicians. Perhaps only a figure from outside the governing class could do so. So he's kind of making the case for why, not being a huge fan of Trump, he became anti-anti-Trump, and a lot of people went with Trump. I think that resonates. I think a lot of people probably not along to that. He says, now, though, even such qualified hopes are no longer tenable. We know too much in 2023 to think that Trump will be a better politician in the future than he has shown himself to be in the past. To begin with, we know too much about Trump as a Republican presidential nominee to be confident that he'll prevail against Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, or some other Democrat in 2024. Given that Trump won 46.1% of the popular vote in 2016 and 46.8% of the popular vote in 2020, we have every reason to believe that his ceiling is on the wrong side of 50%. This is a problem. In 2016, many things had to go just right for Trump to translate his second-place finish into an electoral college majority, starting with third-party candidates winning 5.7% of the vote and Hillary Clinton's singular shortcomings as a politician. To predicate another presidential nomination on such favorable conditions falling into place, once more, is to invite defeat. Now, you might disagree with some of this, but just think about it. Even if you are entertaining voting for Trump again, 
to be the nominee next year. He's run for president twice. He's never gotten 47% of the two-party vote, or of the overall popular vote. He's never gotten to 47%. And that was against Hillary Clinton. And he had to still sort of run an inside straight, thread a needle to win that election. And she was arguably the worst major party nominee in modern American history. And then Joe Biden, this boring, in some ways, bumbling guy who barely campaigned. Trump calling him Sleepy Joe. And with that in place, Trump won 46.8% and lost that election to Biden. So Vogley, in this piece that I'm reading from, Make Republicans Electable Again, continues. There's little reason to think that Trump can crack this ceiling and improve upon the results he got in 2016 and 2020. Not since Richard Nixon has an American politician won a presidential nomination and lost the general election, 1960, then come back, eight years later in Nixon's case, to win a subsequent nomination and election. Nixon prevailed in 1968 by, among other things, offering himself as the new Nixon, a more mature, statesmanlike, conciliatory candidate than the previous aggressive partisan of the 1940s and 50s. Vogley writes, there is absolutely no reason to believe that the most recent Republican president is either interested in or capable of running in 2024 as a new Trump. Now 76 years old, a political figure for much longer than he has been a political one, Donald Trump is extremely unlikely to introduce a revised persona for the purpose of making himself acceptable to a wider range of the electorate. It's just as well, he writes, that Trump doesn't try any such makeover, as one can hardly conceive of a more futile project. Since announcing his candidacy in 2015, Trump has been the nation's dominant political story, the most discussed person in public life, and the most polarizing. At this point, the number of voters who feel they still don't know enough about him to form an opinion would barely fill a high school auditorium. Within the 53% of the electorate that has voted against him twice, let me repeat that, within the 53%, that's a majority of the electorate that has voted against him twice, the subset that might be amenable to being won over in a third contest must be even smaller. Vogley goes on to look at some of the numbers, such as among independents, where Trump beat Hillary Clinton among independents, and then lost by double digits within that subset, within that group, to Joe Biden. He has one of the worst favorable, unfavorable ratings of any public figure in politics today. Vogley writes, of course, in 2016, Trump defied the polls, the odds, the experts. However small his chances to win in 2024, they are greater than zero. The case for nominating Trump, despite the probability that he would lose in the general election, is that a second Trump term's benefits to the nation and the Republican Party are so great that they justify betting everything on a long shot. We also, however, know too much about Trump as president to believe this argument. And he goes on to give a mixed view of Trump's record as president. I actually think in some ways he's too critical on this point. I think Trump, in terms of outcomes, policy outcomes for conservatives, was better than a lot of his critics on the right had feared, myself included. Right? I'm willing to make that point. 
He writes, Trump's victories in 2016 were made possible by the weakness, intellectual and political, of the Republican argument as expressed since Ronald Reagan left the White House in 1989. Though far from being a systematic thinker, Trump put forward the raw materials of a Republican governing philosophy notably different from what had gone before. Its unifying theme was a nationalism that was unapologetic and vigorous, but also circumspect. The problem is that Donald Trump contributed, this is in his opinion, much more to the development and clarification of these purposes before his inauguration than he did after it. This is the part of the argument that I think is most debatable, where he basically says Trump pursued the policies that almost any Republican president would have, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or someone else. Maybe, maybe not. I think Trump stuck with certain arguments longer than others would have, like moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which bipartisan presidents had promised, then never delivered on. Trump insisted on that. Would someone else have done that? given the bipartisan tradition of kicking that can? I don't know. Uh, Maybe not. Would another Republican president have stuck behind Brett Kavanaugh when things got wobbly? I don't know. Trump made it almost a point of pride to do so. So whether you think Trump was on balance a failure vis-a-vis the promises that he made, I am not as amenable to that part of the argument That Vogley makes here. But then he goes through and talks about the 2020 election, Trump's loss, Trump's distortion of the loss, the claims about fraud, the claims about unfairness, and then the evidence or lack thereof backing up those claims. And he goes through them in a detailed way, I think in a fair-minded way, in a dispositive way. He then goes and quotes Victor Davis Hanson, at some length about Trump, his successes, his strengths, his flaws, and the ferocity of Trump's opposition and the unfairness with which Trump was treated. And I don't dispute that. I think Trump was treated very unfairly by the Washington establishment in a number of ways and certainly the news media. But Vogley writes, two things can be true, however, that Trump was unfairly maligned and thwarted and that he made the worst of a bad situation. You might disagree. I think that's a fair point on both sides of that point. William Vogley concludes his piece with a final point that I want to bring to you right after this break. Please stay tuned. Quick break. We'll take it and come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. Thanks for being here. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. And I have been reading extensively from a piece at TheAmericanMind.org that I want to finish up here. William Vogley, who's a Claremont Institute senior fellow, he's senior fellow of the Claremont Review of Books, concludes his piece entitled Make Republicans Electable Again with this. He says, a political party that wants to prevail or even survive must treat these contests, meaning elections, seriously, putting forward its most promising rather than its most victimized candidates. Life is unfair, John Kennedy said in 1962. There is always inequity. Even if one stipulates that the transgressions Trump committed 
were less serious than the ones he suffered. The Republican Party exists to win elections and govern wisely, not to validate and nurture grievances. Its ultimate objective of principled victory cannot be reconciled with nominating Donald Trump for president in 2024. Now, I skipped and glossed over certain parts of this essay just for the purposes of time. I would encourage you to Google it. It's William Vogley, Make Republicans Electable Again at AmericanMind.org. And assess the evidence and the argument that he makes. And this is not an anti-Trump screed at, like, the bulwark from the Bill Kristol crowd. That is not what this is. This is a pretty cold-eyed view from a Trump-sympathetic person over his presidency and during his campaign in recent years. Someone who broadly embraces Trump's agenda is glad about the disruption that Trump made and caused in the Republican Party who shares that sort of right populist lane, that's the person prosecuting this case. Some of it's kind of personal about Trump's character and personality and that sort of thing, his inability to change for better and for worse, but a lot of it's just like looking at the numbers, looking at the evidence and saying, is it a sane, rational, wise decision for a political party to nominate someone who had to really reap the benefit of a particularly unique moment in history in 2016 to just eke out a victory against a terrible candidate, winning only 46% of the popular vote, and then losing four years later by a hefty margin against also a very underwhelming opponent. Is it rational, sane, etc., to put that person especially someone in his now mid to late 70s, up yet again with the American people having a very clearly formed opinion of that person with a majority of the electorate twice voting against him. Especially when there are other people who might be more popular, more promising, who can go win. Is the purpose, as he asks, to settle scores and pursue grievances and engage basically in tribalism, or is the goal to win elections? That, I think, is the core question that Republican voters are going to have to ask themselves in the coming months. And as I keep saying, a decision of enormous consequence is looming next year. We're not there yet. We've still got a while to go. But these considerations are going to matter a lot which is why I wanted to bring this argument, not from me, but from someone else who would be much Trumpier, I would say, overall than yours truly. I wanted to bring this to your attention. For your consideration, I'll just put it that way. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Griff Jenkins is down at the border. He's got some brand new data on the border crisis. Spoiler alert, it is the worst ever on record. We'll get those numbers from him straight ahead. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 Eastern, is this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. Our website is guybensonshow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's Instagram as well. As we begin our final hour, let's bring in Griff Jenkins, Fox News Channel correspondent who is in Eagle Pass, Texas today covering the border crisis. Griff, it's great to have you back here. Hey, Guy, I'm happy to be here. And let me find a cold cerveza to pour here along the border because it hit 81 degrees today. So a bit bit warm and uh, looking for a cold beer down here. Well, maybe we can get you a long drink, ice cold. Seems like you could use it. It's quite chilly up in this neck of the woods. But unfortunately, the border crisis still red hot. I saw that you were reporting earlier some new numbers. They're not official yet. We're still waiting on the official numbers from the administration. But based on your sources within Border Patrol, it looks like December was a record-shattering month. Give us those details. That's right, Guy. I mean, look, honestly, we have never seen this crisis and these kind of numbers in history. And now, according to the multiple CBP sources that I talked to, 16 days into January, CBP has yet to publish publicly the official numbers for December. But I know that it is going to be in excess of 250,000. Now, the highest on official record came in May this past year, 241,000. But right now we are sitting in excess of 250,000 for December. We'll see when they finally release it. And the number they're not ever going to release but I have from the CBP headquarters sources that we talked to, I know that there have been more than 70,000 additional migrants who got away, meaning they were observed or detected by our officials but not brought into custody. This is why you are seeing so many people, to include Democrat New York City Mayor Eric Adams, say that they have reached a, quote, breaking point and that they are in and that we are in a national crisis. Yeah, and we'll get back to Eric Adams here in a second, but let's just think about some of those data points that you just shared with us. More than 250,000 encounters last month. That is going to be, if I heard you correctly, the largest number ever on record in a single month coming in December of 2022, yes? That's exactly right. We've never had... Listen, we are... Guy, we have had going up to November, nine straight months, over 200,000. It was a huge uh, uh, marker to cross 200,000, and we did it the last nine straight months. Now the 10th month will be not only 200,000, it will be the highest ever on record at 250,000. Well, and by the way, you can just do the math. You can just do the math there. 200,000 plus a month times 10 is well over 2 million people over the span of those 10 months 
with the highest ever being more than a quarter million encounters in December alone. And then the last part of what you said a moment ago, Griff, is intriguing and frustrating as well. I had seen our colleague Bill Malugin. He was hearing from his sources that the known Godaways population just in December was going to be north of 65,000, which is just an extraordinary number, way, way up there, perhaps record-breaking if my memory serves. You're saying that the update would be more than 70,000 is what you're hearing? That's right. And uh, the number that I have got, and, and by the way, just to be transparent about this, I'm not, someone's not saying, oh, hey, by the way, let me tell you this. I have, I am physically in possession of screenshots of the classified database dashboard. I mean, when the chief of the Border Patrol decides to go and look and see for himself how many encounters there have been, I have images of that. So should they decide they don't like my reporting, I usually just routinely send them a screenshot of their official database. And I also have in that the latest Gataway figures, and I can tell you that right now, and in fairness, sometimes these things get amended one way or the other, only in the tens or hundreds, not by the thousands, because they're constantly updating their databases from sector to sector, and there's nine sectors across the southwest border. But I know that number is in excess of 71,000. And let me give you one last data point, and I don't want to kill people with data, but I'm waiting for the exact number of countries, but the, in December, we encountered migrants from well beyond more than 100 different countries. And it's so important that people understand that because we have been told this narrative that, well, these poor Central Americans coming from that northern triangle of uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, in, in, in Honduras, uh, or Mexico are coming. Then we started learning, well, no, they're coming also from as far away as Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti, for which we now have this new policy allowing 30000 per month. But but that's not the case. The whole world is coming because they're seeing that our border is, in fact, unlike what the administration says, wide open for anyone to come. And just yesterday, I had a group of 149 migrants, and I asked the, the Border Patrol agents, I was like, you know, who we got here? Where are they from? They said, well, we've got a few. We have these three over here, which you pointed out to me. One was from Senegal. Two others were from Guinea-Bissau. Those are Western African countries. Wow. I mean, it also just belies and exposes the folly of the so-called root causes approach that they've tasked the vice president with. You cannot address the root causes of illegal immigration in 150, 170 countries or whatever it is over the last year plus. I mean, it just can't be done. What you can control is your policy, your borders, your enforcement, which is what they seem allergic to do. And just doing some back-of-the-envelope math, which is even arithmetic that I can do, 250,000-plus encounters, and then you add more than 70,000 known gotaways, at a minimum, you're talking about 320,000 crossings in a single month last month. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. It's getting worse. Now, Griff, you mentioned that 30,000 a month mass parole allowance that Joe Biden has now introduced as an executive order for a handful of countries. So you've got that affecting Venezuela, but then three additional ones, Haiti, I believe, 
uh, Nicaragua being another, Cuba I think is the third, correct me if I'm wrong, is that new policy, that new adjustment, because they're saying if you're not qualified to be part of that temporary 30000 every month, which is two years, I just think long-term that's totally untenable. People aren't going to leave when their two years expires. I, I just think it's bad policy, but the argument at least coming from the administration is this will slow down the tide a bit. The numbers are going to get better. Is that what you're hearing from your sources on the ground? And if the official numbers on encounters actually do get better because of that policy, does the Godaway number start to climb? Great point. And you put your finger on it, Guy, at the very end. The Godaways, officials tell me across the board that Godaway numbers are only going to increase because of this administration's policy. And to be clear, the thinking of the administration is if we take these migrants from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti, which are countries for which the U.S. has no repatriation agreements with, so we can't send them home, we've got to do something with them. The thinking is if they allow if you're in Mexico or in, in another country, you apply for asylum, you could be paroled up to 30000 a month in the U.S., that would get things under control. But it's not addressing the fundamental problem, and I love that you put your finger on the fact that they're allergic to actually doing deterrence or root causes. The fundamental what, – what, what ultimately, at the end of the day, bottom line, what so many Border Patrol chiefs and officials were hoping would be the byproduct – or the outcome of the Biden trip to the border into Mexico would be some agreement with Mexico that they would stop being a transit country for millions of migrants whose explicit intention is to illegally cross the U.S. and just claim asylum to be released in mass. And there's neither a Biden policy change that is in any shape or form the in mass catch and release policies, which are in place now, or any agreement with Mexico to cut down and secure their southern border and cut down right. the number of migrants that simply are passing through Mexico. And so this new policy with regards to the four countries we have no repatriation agreements isn't going to do anything to cut those numbers down, according to the officials I talked to. And it will increase the gotaways because now they know they can't just simply give up. They got a gotaway. They got a way to keep from being detected. Yeah, I mean, incentives matter. People respond to incentives. That's what we're going to see. To some extent, we're already seeing it. And it's just interesting. They can prattle on and use the buzz phrase root causes until they're blue in the face. That doesn't actually mean that the root causes of the crisis are what they say they are. The root causes are their own policies. That's the reality. And you mentioned a few moments ago New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who finally went down there. He went to El Paso. He saw a little bit of what was happening for himself, perhaps a less sanitized version of what President Biden saw when apparently he saw zero migrants over the course of his short pit stop there. And Eric Adams, who is the proud, braggadocious leader of an alleged sanctuary city that they're very excited about that. They beat their chest about how progressive they are in their sanctuary city status. He's saying we're full. There's no room left in New York City. We can't do this anymore. And he went down there, saw a little tiny sliver of the problem, and Griff, he declared it a national crisis that requires national solutions. I mean, I think part of the Republican strategy to bus migrants to these sanctuary cities to force some of these leaders to grapple with reality has paid some dividends. And when you have Eric Adams saying what he said, I don't know how you can read that as anything other than 
a wake-up call from one Democrat to a Democratic administration. It's paid huge dividends. And listen, I'll at least give Eric Adams credit. He actually saw a migrant and spoke to a couple of them, something that Biden didn't do. And, you know, I got to tell you, you're harping on these root causes, guy. And this is the best conversation I've had with any host in a long time because really going after they said they were going to do root causes Kamala Harris is going to do root causes and then of course that got washed away she wasn't even on the border trip when Biden went last week but I have been in the Darien Gap in the jungle last year I traveled down there that's where these root causes come through I've been in the caravan 7,000 miles through Honduras Guatemala uh, through El Salvador and all of Mexico countless countless times in every border city from Juarez to Tijuana, to Reynosa, to Piedras Negras, uh, to Matamoros. And ultimately, the root causes are not being addressed because we are incentivizing these people that if they simply want a better life, just come, we'll turn you loose in the U.S. And that is the root cause is right in front of their face. They are doing it. That's why you hear so much criticism about they are their own problem. And then the president of the United States, having avoided going to the border for real to actually look at it for his entire political career, decades, he finally spends a few hours down there under pressure, finally from his own party, some of his allies in the media. He checked the box, dog and pony show, didn't see any migrants. And then he went on to Mexico City for this summit with the Mexican president. And we heard from Bloomberg and their reporting that top-level U.S. officials and Mexican officials ran out of time before they could even address the border crisis, which is the number one issue facing these two countries bilaterally. They didn't get to it, apparently, based on Bloomberg's reporting, which tells you everything you need to know about prioritization. But we did hear from the Mexican president in that joint press conference with Biden and, and also the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, It was President López Obrador who thanked Biden personally and effusively for not building even one more meter of border wall, which might be a genuine sentiment coming from that leader of that country. I'm not sure it's exactly the attaboy that Biden wanted to hear, publicly at least, given what's happening, because the Mexicans might be cheering him on for the lack of enforcement, while you've got even Democrats in this country desperate for more enforcement and they might not get it anytime soon griff jenkins down at the border eagle pass texas bringing us lots of key new information today on the crisis that he's been covering along with some of our colleagues here for months on end griff stay safe stay cool i can't believe i'm saying that but we'll talk again soon sounds great guy have a good one that's griff jenkins on the guy benson show we'll be right back fresh conservative talk guy benson show It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. A lot of happy voices strained in Cincinnati last night on that play. One of the wildest things I've seen in a football game ever. The Baltimore Ravens knocking on the door for the go-ahead touchdown. They fumble the ball at like the one or two-yard line of Cincinnati, recovered by the Bengals, return 98 yards for the winning touchdown. 
Baltimore had a chance late to tie it up. They couldn't get it done, but what a play. Pandemonium. And you could hear Mike Tirico going nuts on that call on NBC. Somewhere, Bill Hemmer was losing his mind as a diehard Bengals fan. So they advance in a very exciting wild card weekend that isn't quite over because of the long weekend, MLK Day today. There's another game this evening, Cowboys-Bucks in Tampa. Home game for Tampa Bay just because of the divisions, even though the Cowboys have a much better record. In fact, the Buccaneers are slightly below 500. So I'd be picking Dallas in this game, even though I'm not rooting for Dallas in that game. But it was interesting, this past weekend, there was really only one game that wasn't good. It was the first game of the wild card weekend with San Francisco beating up on Seattle. was never really that close. So that was a howler early. And then from then on, the Chargers looked like they were on their way to stomping Jacksonville. And then the Jaguars came roaring back with an historic comeback, 31-30 the final and they just played it perfectly down the stretch. Game-winning field goal at home. you got to feel excited for those fans who've been so starved for anything. Trevor Lawrence shaking off a dreadful first half and leading the team to that comeback. Then the Bills playing the Dolphins at home. That was, I think, too close for comfort for Bills Mafia, but the home team wins and advances 34-31. And then my G-men, Big Blue, The Giants going into Minneapolis and beating the Vikings, getting some revenge for that crazy loss in Minneapolis during the regular season. The Vikings are out. The Giants advanced. Go beat Philadelphia. That would be sweet. Going to be a tall order, though. And then, as I mentioned, another game tonight with the nation watching. Tom Brady hosting the Cowboys should be an interesting one. And if it's like any other game except for the first one, it could be tight and exciting. The NFL man living up to the playoff billing in weekend one. Even if you're not a huge fan, you can't argue with the entertainment value. Are you not entertained? I definitely was, as were millions. We'll see what happens tonight. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is right back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. During our first hour on the Guy Benson Show here today on this Monday, Charlie Hurt of the Washington Times and the Fox News contributor joined us talking about the news of the day, mostly politics. Always interesting, always lively with Charlie. Today, as usual, no exception. Here's part of that conversation that we had. Just your overall thoughts on the Biden documents and sort of the spin that keeps getting updated because they keep having to change their story basically every day. Yeah, they really do. Um, and I think that we're sort of at a spot now where it's undeniable that, that this actually really could end up going somewhere. Uh, because, like you say, they keep having to update everything that they say about it. And it's clear that you know th- there are significant differences between the situation that, with uh, Donald Trump and then the situation with Joe Biden, and I would argue that that uh, the situation with Joe Biden is much, much, much worse. Um, and and the the main reasons for that are because, you know, when when Joe Biden left the the, the Obama White House six years ago, he had no authority whatsoever to take those documents. Not even a, a, a speech. You know, even if you don't agree with 
the legal reasoning of, of the that Trump's lawyers have made about those documents. You can't even make those arguments, begin to make any arguments about Biden. And then and then all of the other questions that have come up uh, that you've covered uh, ably about you know what you know where have these documents been? Who's seen them? Um, what's uh, you know what, what, what was the purpose of taking them in the first place? Um, and and so I, I think it's I, I really do. I see this as a moment where um, things are turning inside the Democrat Party for Joe Biden. Yeah, and there was a pretty testy exchange yesterday on Meet the Press. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin, he was on with Chuck Todd. And Todd had asked him, basically on the Hunter Biden stuff, sort of incredulous and angry. Well, what crime are you, you know, what crime did he commit? You know, what are you actually alleging was actually a crime here? And it went back and forth. It got a little personal. And here's how part of it sounded in Cut 28. I'm concerned about getting the truth. I don't target individuals, target individuals. <laughs> I target you don't? You're targeting Hunter Biden. My, my, my concern is this show, my, Senator. You're targeting an Chuck, individual. Chuck, my, my concern, my, you know, Chuck. You know, p- part of the problem, and, and this is pretty obvious to anybody watching this, is you don't invite me on to interview me. You invite me on to argue with me. You know, I'm just trying to lay out the facts that certainly Senator Grassley and I uncovered. They were suppressed. They were censored. They interfered in the 2020 election. Conservatives understand that. Unfortunately, liberals in the media don't. And that's part of the things yeah. that uh, part, of, part of the reasons our politics are inflamed is we do not have an unbiased uh, media. We don't. It's unfortunate. I'm all for a free press. Well, it needs Senator, to be more unbiased. Senator, There's look, misinformation is, look, on both partisan, sides, but the Senator, censorship and Senator, suppression look, we're trying to primarily do issues here, occurs in from fact, the left. Partisan cable, look, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon and talk about media bias all you want. I understand it's part of your identity. The cable cocoon, it's part of your identity. I mean, that, that's a pretty snide thing there from Chuck Todd, Charlie. And part of the challenge that he put to Johnson was, you know, if you're going to keep talking about Hunter Biden, what crimes are you talking about? Well, first of all, there's a federal investigation that's been going on for years into this guy, all sorts of shady stuff going on. And we also know that there were multiple reports, including from NBC News this past fall, about prosecutors believing they had the elements of several different crimes already looking into Hunter Biden. It, I don't think, was a very good look there for the moderator, quote unquote, of Meet the Press. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing the lengths people like Chuck Todd will go to to stick up for not just Hunter Biden, but the entire Biden administration and um, yeah, and, and and Democrats in general. And and I love how they talk about this supposed cocoon, cable cocoon. Well, you know, you want to talk about a cocoon? The entire media establishment is a cocoon for the Democrat yep. Party, yep. and it's 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 protected by people like Chuck Todd, and it really is uh, it really is disgusting. But I, I I I'll be honest with you, and I, and I don't how I, you know I don't know anything, um, but but ha- you know having seen uh, you know studied politics for a long time, my full interview with Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor, available on our website guybensonshow.com, also part of our free podcast, the entire show. On demand, start to finish, no charge to you every single day after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's time for the home stretch. How did producer Christine fare with her big brunch and her baking project, a crumb cake for her relatives with the assistance of Quiet Wyatt, 
a big task yesterday that we talked about and previewed on Monday. Let's get the after-action report. Did it go according to plan? That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Monday edition, Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Our website podcast is always free on demand. Got a lot of TV this week, including some big stuff up in New York. We'll tell you about that as the week progresses. So on Friday, we gave you a little preview that producer Christine was going to be hosting a brunch at her home yesterday for a bunch of her relatives driving from Long Island, New York, to New Jersey, something that they almost never do. Usually Christine and Bobby and Megan are the ones schlepping out to Long Island. Finally, some reciprocity. So Christine said we're going to do a brunch, and she said the star of the show, well, a few of them, you're going to have this casserole with some French toast casserole, I think, but a big star of the show was going to be crumb cake. She was very excited to bake with the assistance, at least the guidance, of Quiet Wyatt, who, as we were reminded on Friday's show, used to run a small bakery business when he was in high school because that is extremely on-brand for Wyatt. So I was sort of skeptical just because, you know, it's Christine. And as she's admitted herself, she's not really the cook of the house, but she wanted to take on this whole project herself. And at least she would have Wyatt. I know he said he'd be ready on FaceTime if necessary to help her with the baking process. But I just wasn't so sure. And I will say I got a text message from my mother who was listening to the home stretch, as she very often does with my dad. And she thinks, I think she worries that I'm a little bit too hard on Christine sometimes. So she was like, be nice. She's going to do great. It's going to be lovely. It's going to be great. She's got this. And I was like, does she? So yesterday I texted our team, hadn't heard anything for a while, so I texted the team, how did it go? How was the crumb cake? And I heard nothing back. Nothing even from Wyatt. And I was like, is he taking a small cat nap, having read the entire Wall Street Journal cover to cover twice? I mean, it's just strange to have no response. Then finally we start to hear a couple of things. And Christine... It turns out that my mother's faith in you was perhaps not fully well-placed in that the crumb cake didn't get made at all. Is that right? So let me just point out your mother was correct because the brunch was successful. Very, very successful. Just like your dry January that ended seven days in? Well, remember, we changed it to damp, and I'm nailing it. On damn January no, as well. No, so this, your definitions of success, I think, are suspect is what I'm pointing mm-hmm. out. But go ahead. The crumb cake, it wasn't a failure because it was never made. So I, I never got the chance to even attempt it because apparently well, isn't I that had... a, Isn't that a fail? Like if you don't hand in an assignment in the school, right, that's an F. Well, right, but this wasn't necessarily an assignment. No, I no, mean, it wasn't I... required. You had just told Mm-mm. a national audience <laughs> that, like, very confidently, almost with a sense of boastfulness, that you were going to be doing this and you got this and you had the whole thing from Wyatt, and then it just, just like, didn't even make it onto the launch pad. Did you run out of time? 
Uh, I didn't have the proper ingredients and then I ran out of time. Yes. I thought my family was coming a little later. And what I wanted to do was make the crumb cake like Whoa, fresh. Whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hmm. What time were they invited for? Like in what way? You were the host. So you did they come shockingly early or do you tell them the wrong time? So what happens with, um, I'm sure people that know this, that have family in Long Island, you don't really tell them a time. They tell you a time. Basically when they're going to get there. So uh, the ETA was supposed to be noon, and then all of a sudden it was like 11.20. So that's 40 mi- minutes of I needed to go get the proper ingredients. I didn't have the right oil. Apparently I was supposed to have vegetable oil, and the only oil that we had was, I think, avocado and olive oil. And my husband was like, you cannot bake with that. Like, it's Wait, were not you going to gonna- try to make a crumb cake with olive oil? Yeah, I just didn't. I just figured oil's oil. Like I didn't really put much even, into. Even I know. I mean, Wyatt, help us here. So, but, but there's olive oil cakes, like I've heard of. So yeah, but that's I, I think specifically made for that purpose with a particular recipe to make it taste good. It's not substituting olive oil for a different oil for a cake that's supposed to have a different taste profile. We could say, <laughs> Wyatt, am I right about that? Yes, that's correct. You you do not want to mix those two different types of oils up because you might not even have a cake. It might just be like a pancake. Huh. What about the avocado oil? Would that have worked? Mm, I don't. I mean, I don't know. You could have experimented, but I would have not have recommended doing that on you a stick on a, to the recipe. That's well, the but point here's of the, the recipe. Thing, but don't you remember? I went on the like anti seed oils thing in the summer so i threw out all the bad oils the only oils we have in the house are olive oil and avocado but that was oil. yet another phase that you went through didn't stick with then you needed the oil that you'd thrown away and just like you've thrown away previous vacuum cleaners it just seems like it's just a, a rolling cascade of decisions christine that sometimes just don't pan out well I mean, I think for the benefit of my child's health, my health, and my husband's health, I think I did a good thing by getting rid of, you know, the bad oils, as they call them. But I guess you needed that proper, that oil for baking. I wonder if I could have bought coconut oil. I don't know. If any bakers are out there, let me know, like, a good alternative. Because vegetable oil, they use that to, like, make car tires. It's not good for you. But you'd have to plan in advance to have a recipe and then follow the recipe and not just be, like, in a lab coat with beakers trying to figure (laughs) out, Christine, on your own, like, oh, maybe this different oil will work out. So I think ultimately it was a wise decision not to make the cake with the wrong oil, which could have been, frankly, a much more entertaining failure for the purposes of this show. But uh, you just, just didn't do it at all. Yeah, so I, I mean, hope your other stuff was better. Like, did you – how was your uh, twirled eggs dish? Okay, 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 another thing. We never got to the eggs. You didn't <laughs> cook eggs. I swear it was – I swear I forgot about that too. And I even bought chives to, like, sprinkle over the eggs. Wait, we never got Scrambled the eggs. eggs, which you called twirled, scrambled yeah. eggs take – it's like the shortest, quickest thing to cook in the world. You know, it just seemed like I had a lot of food already. So, like, I, we forgot. Like, once everybody left, I looked at Bobby. I'm like, I forgot to do the eggs. He's like, oh, my God. And eggs are expensive these days. <laughs> yeah, They're crazy expensive. Yeah, we have, like, expensive. a huge amount of eggs right now. I just realized we have so many eggs in the fridge because he bought, like, double. When scrambled know. eggs, in my opinion, just like bacon, 
When scrambled eggs and bacon is prepared, it just gets consumed. If it's there, it's easy to eat a lot of without feeling like you're eating that much of it. You just twirl them right up. You fry up the bacon. People would have eaten it. Did people eat bacon? Did you cook the bacon? We had bacon. We I baked the bacon. Uh, we had sausage. You like, baked you know, it? Yeah, we baked the bacon. Hmm. Okay. It's healthier than, you know, frying it. And then um, Bobby, Megan, and I all together, I mean, really, Bobby did it, but we helped uh, make the French toast casserole the night before, and that was easy peasy because then you just, like, you know, let it sit overnight, and then you throw it in the oven. So I had that, the bacon, the sausage, fruit, and I made a little charcuterie board. So I totally forgot about the um, eggs. Thanks for reminding me. The eggs. Yeah, I mean, all it is is eggs at a breakfast brunch. (sighs) Easy, easy thing to forget, I guess. Now, were your relatives satisfied considering how difficult it is to get them to Jersey. They always make you come to them. Do you feel like they were impressed and might return? Yeah. I'm not sure if they were definitely impressed with like the food. They just couldn't get over where we lived. Cause remember we moved into like a really nice apartment complex, like, you know, with the nice amenities. So like now they're like texting me the summer. Can we use your pool? Like, okay, there you go. The pool could help. (laughs) They couldn't get over how nice it looks like a hotel. So they like, were really Bobby just could on grill. And on about that. They could use the pool. So maybe you'll be able to woo them back and you can do a little bit less driving over the summer. See, that's a plus. I think so. I think the whole day, and we had, which was nice. And then I had bought like peach and mango juice to try to make mimosas like a little different. Don't do that. Stick with the orange juice. Don't try to so like, there was, go, there know. was booze. Did you have some booze? A little bit, not much, mm. not much at all. I mean, a couple, but nothing. That's nothing. A couple, really, nothing. Did you have any I mean, wine, like, like previously in the weekend? No, Mm-mm. nope. So all of your boozing was on Sunday. Yeah, and it, like I said, it was just it was minimal. And then mm. you know they left, and it was you know it's a lot when you are hosting the the bulk of it is the cleaning after. It just takes forever. Yeah, the, the cleaning um, is not I fun. I, I love how you just say, oh, it wasn't much. It was just a couple, just a couple <laughs> alcoholic beverages. Day drinking, by the way, I will point out. Uh, speaking of all of that, Dan, are you still hanging on, hanging in there with your dry January? I am, but just barely. I mean, it was really tough, I got to say, especially with the, all the talk about this brunch. I was like, I really could go for like a bloody or a mimosa or something like that. But I'm hanging strong. You did it. I'm not damp. I am For another weekend, you've done it. Impressive, and that's why I asked, doing some accountability stuff. Right now. I had a very, very, very damp Friday, but that was it. But, of course, I was never claiming to be a dry January adherent, unlike Christine. By the way, one last point, since we're talking about food and cuisine and all things culinary. We watched over the weekend, I think it was on HBO Max, a movie called The Menu which is kind of a horror suspense-type film, but also kind of a very dark comedy that's making fun of over-the-top foodie culture. And as someone who enjoys over-the-top foodie culture but can roll my eyes at how excessive it can get, I found the movie to be disturbing on some level but also quite fun. I laughed multiple times over the course of this movie. And it had been recommended by a few different people. I saw some of the reviews were excellent, and I enjoyed it. I think Christine would hate it, if I had to guess. Dan, did you watch it? Yeah, I did. I loved it. I love Ray Fiennes, too. And the whole concept was hilarious and and gruesome, and I love both. Yeah, a couple just terrific one-liners 
that made me laugh. The sommelier and his pretentiousness <laughs> yeah. got me a couple times. The line about the Ivy League school and the student debt and, and what the chef said to her right after that, that cracked me up. So I recommend it. It's good. It's clever. It's funny. It's dark. Christine would not like it. I'm just warning you, Christine, in advance. All right. I feel like Bobby had spoke about this, but we are so entrenched right now in Yellowstone. We're on season two. So that's all we've been People watching. People love it. You and Ron DeSantis, your cousin, although it's spelled differently. Yeah, your names are similar. Last names are similar, but not the same. He loves Yellowstone. I think Bobby would like the menu. I'm not sure you would. But if you end up watching it, you can report back and tell me if I'm wrong. I so rarely am. Now, with that, I've got to go. We've all got to go. Show's over. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show with the holiday weekend ending for most folks. We are working hard today. Talk to you for the Tuesday edition coming up, and have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.